I was honored to have this conversation with Marilyn Lerner, who is a unique pianist and composer, who is a powerfully expressive musician across a range of styles. She's a wonderful improviser and has performed worldwide, as well as recorded extensively as both a soloist and as an ensemble player. She's also a therapist and psychoanalyst, and our conversation moved through many fascinating and important topics, including ideas around identity and creativity. All of these episodes are available both as a video and a podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. The transcript will be published to my website, which is linked in the description. Hi, Marilyn Lerner. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi. Thank you, Leah. So, um... You've agreed to play, and some guests prefer to play towards the beginning because they're kind of ready to go, but some are like, oh, we'll, we'll play later. So what would you rather do? Would you like to give us some music right away, or you want to talk first? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to play a little, I'll improvise for a few minutes just to sort of give you, a, just to warm up a little bit. Yeah. How would that be? That'd be wonderful. Beautiful. You really ended it on a bit of a question with that last chord. <laughs> Just a little wake-up exercise there. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the most straight-ahead jazz playing I've heard you do, because you do play in so many different styles. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, you know, I guess I, I, um, you know, I could sit and play something else for you that's quite a lot different. Um, you know. I'm someone who's had a lot of experience in, in different genres, and I guess the thing is I'm a curious person, and I'm not someone who um, necessarily, even though I studied I studied classical music and I studied jazz, I'm just interested in music. So 
I don't know what's going to strike me at a certain moment. And sometimes I'll be playing a lot of free music, and then I just sit down and I just want to play a, a, st <coughs> a standard, a, a jazz mm -hmm. standard, a jazz ballad. And I think classical music and jazz are the two, t t the two uh, genres of music that I go back to. And I think anyone <coughs> who's a jazz musician, no matter how outside, will go back and try to learn Charlie Parker heads. Or so sometimes I just like to improvise in that style, and I get I sort of get hooked onto it. And then I'll be study. I'll study a composer, and so yes, it's true. Um, I play very many different kinds of of music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard you once live in Ottawa uh, in a performance of The Yellow Ticket, the silent movie with violinist Alicia Spiegels, who is also mm -hmm. featured on this podcast for those listeners who haven't heard that yet. And mm -hmm. I, of course, I was, it was a very moving experience. And actually, I think it's my only time hearing, uh, seeing a silent movie with live music. It was very uh, emotional. And, you know, I thought the music was really successful. And I remember, of course, being impressed with Alicia, but thinking, who's that pianist? She's amazing. It was so cool. <laughs> What you, what you did there. And that opportunity, you toured with her for many years with that project, led to you to playing for other silent films as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a passionate film buff. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of parallels. And, you know, music is a lot about flow, and I think there's a lot of parallels. I mean, I, I just love the arts, and I love all the sensory, the senses of the arts. And uh, so I'm, I'm very attracted to film. And... Um, I think I'd done, I had done some silent, a little bit of silent, I had some interesting experiences with silent film when I, <coughs> when I lived in Winnipeg, which I did for uh, 13 years. Uh, I had a, a chance to do, uh, to put an ensemble together to do a score for the Carl Dreyer 1927 film Joan of Arc, which is, it's a masterpiece of silent filmmaking. It doesn't even need, it doesn't need any music actually, but... And I did this with people from different parts of Winnipeg, which is a small scene, but a very vibrant scene. I put together an ensemble of classical players, folk musicians, and jazz musicians, and spoken word, mm -hmm. and we made a score for... And I, I think I used a sampler with it, like motorcycle sounds. I had all kinds of sounds. and So I had some experience doing that, and I also did that film here. This is before The Yellow Ticket. Here is in Toronto uh, mm -hmm. at the AGO. Um, also, they screened that film, and I had uh, an ensemble of graduating classical musicians from the conservatory, from the Glenn Gould mm -hmm. school. And they had never, they had, some of them had improvised, but some hadn't, and we created a score. So I had some experience with that. But through Alicia, I, I met a curator, uh, Alicia Fletcher, who's a, a dynamo. She's a curator in Toronto, and she called me. And so for the last three or four years now, at least, I've played silent film score. I, I've improvised mm -hmm. silent film. And I just, I love doing it. It's very intuitive for me uh, to try to translate, to try to create uh, an atmosphere around the, the image. And I've, I've, I've uh, accompanied some, uh, some amazing films and really have an appreciation for silent film. Because usually, you know, usually people, they think of silent film, they think of uh, the Keystone Cops. Mm -hmm. And it is so much richer of course than that so it was an education for me but it really is one of those places where I can put my improvising um, skills to to uh, a very in the moment um, experience and, mm -hmm. and, and I'd love to do that especially in, of course in front of a live audience yeah 
Something mm-hmm. I learned recently, um, which I, you know, I never thought of, I've been learning about deaf culture and studying some ASL just to, as a hobby. And the change from silent movies to talkies for the deaf community was horrible because they were just loving going to movies. They understood everything and then they couldn't. That's very interesting. True. In fact, you know the, you know the film Sunset Boulevard? Mm-hmm. So Sunset Boulevard yeah. is a classic. It's not a silent film, but it's about a silent film actress, yeah. Gloria Swanson and William Holden. And what I read about that film was that she played that film as though it was a silent. So everything she does, all her gestures are silent film gestures. And it's true. You have to speak with your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's true. That must have been quite difficult for the deaf community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you were working mm-hmm. with these students, uh, you just mentioned this project from the Glenn Gould. Um, what What kind of... Uh, guidance did you give them to get them to be comfortable with improvisation? Well, um, I got them to try to make sounds, first of all, and to become more comfortable mm-hmm. with improvising, which when, when people are uh, classically trained, some classical musicians, I mean, it's a, an individual thing, are very comfortable with making things up, and some are, are not. Uh, um, they're so finely tuned to the page and the interpretation on the page, and it's so demanding. Um, so the first thing was to try to get to the people who are really scared to improvise and to get them to just make sounds on their instruments. And once they started to get more comfortable, um, then we started to go through the film and to kind of talk about mood. We did it as a a collaboration. Mm -hmm. I I really like to work with ensembles in a collaborative fashion to try to figure out what kind of texture can we get there and how can we... And it just sort of starts to organically form and so we sculpted this. It was more like sculpting mm. this score with different sections. You know, you start to see that there's a rhythm to a film, how it's cut, and you make some decisions about how you're going to interpret those, the different, you know, um, parts of the film. I mean, that's a film that's so intense because it has so many stills and such close-up on the face. There's a, a huge world of what you can do. Mm-hmm. So. I, d- I worked very collaboratively, and that's how I've worked in any workshops that I've done. You know, I've been teaching at Clez Canada um, for a number of years, and my favorite thing to do there is to have an ensemble of musicians. Usually they're a little more advanced, but I've also worked with people who are just sort of, I would say, an amateur musicians who really love mm-hmm. playing to uh, create a piece, uh, f- an improvised piece. Sometimes it's based on a Yiddish tune, and then we try to do something a little bit more experimental with it. So, But I wanted to say that the, the experience with the classical musicians was amazing because a number of them came up to me after and said, you know, I solved some technical problems. Like, by going through this process, I solved some technical problems I was having. I thought, wow, you know, it would be good if improvisation was part of classical, you know, uh, Education and vice versa. I'm not saying it, it should go one way. I, I, I think that uh, improvising musicians also do well to study and analyze pieces mm. because if you compose or you analyze, I think it does uh, it does add to an improvisational palette. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did a workshop um, o- online during the earlier part of the pandemic with uh, both Jesse Stewart and Alan Waterman. Um, the same idea and working with classical musicians, um, colleagues of mine. And I was one of those people who was so scared. So since then, I have been 
trying different styles of improvisation and just it's really helped me a lot um it's been kind of therapy mm -hmm. for me as a oh, that's as great. a glued to the page classical player mm -hmm. yeah that's great that's yeah fantastic yeah i mean you can explore the, the way people make sounds on their instrument that are not traditional sounds extended technique i mean with strings well it's just amazing what you can do with harmonics with the you know it's such a percussive instrument yeah I mean, interestingly enough, my, my path in, in improvisation, uh, I guess you've, if you've done, if you've read up on me, you know that I was in a duo with Laurie Friedman for a number of years, and then we were, we uh, had a violist, uh, and then we were the Queen, the Queen Mab trio. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a duo, um, so we met, I think I heard her play, and then we met and decided to get together and improvise. And so this Laurie Friedman is a virtuoso of improvised music, but she comes from a new music, classical and new music uh, background. And uh, playing with her, um, I just got very frustrated with my instrument because she was a clarinet, she could play one note and she could shatter your eardrum. <laughs> she, could, she could do so much with one note and I would play one note and all I would hear would be that. And I started to hate the instrument, the <laughs> piano. It was a very important uh, experience for me because then I started to realize, well, the piano is not just, this, it's not, first of all, it's not just the keys. It's also, it's a, it's a string instrument. It's a wind instrument. It's metal. It's all kinds of things. And so I discovered the piano. I discovered it inside the yeah. piano. And then discovering inside the piano helped me to think about the keys. If I had to play just with the keys, mm -hmm. How was I going to not just be rooted to like the first improvisation? I, 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 you know, that was very tonal, very diatonic, right? It was just sort of playing around. But what if I was to improvise without having that? You know, I'm not going to be playing in a harmonic way. What would I do? Mm -hmm. And uh, so started to think about the, the piano. Of course, is a textural instrument as well as percussive, and and for me also listening to contemporary classical music like. Uh, well, listen to all classical music is very has always been very uh, as helpful to me in terms of improvising, like Scriabin or something or um, uh, Messiaen. Okay, so like I listen to Messiaen and then I'll just sort of. I just uh, understand. Oh, it's gestural for me. Now I'm not. I'm not trying to imitate Messiaen, but it it liberates me to think about piano as a gestural instrument. So it's not about the notes. It's about gesture. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if I do this? Like play and sort totally, of demonstrate? Of course, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you can stop me. Stop me anytime. But. That's very liberating for me to be able to 
improvise that way and not think so much. And even if I'm playing in a jazz context sometimes, I use that kind of gestural playing and it just takes me into a different realm. And it takes me out of the realm of you can play a wrong note, first of all, because it's not diatonic, you know, it's not a harmonic. And um, it, it really opens up. The, it makes the piano much more of a dance to me than the interesting thing about playing, you know, jazz. The interesting thing about jazz to me, one of the most interesting things is the harmony mm -hmm. and to the chord substitutions and, you know, trying to harmonize a piece. But the gestural playing is a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it really seems like um, learning about your, your youth, you're really such an intuitive musician. Can you talk about, from what I understand, you started when you were about seven on the piano, but by the time you were eight or nine, you were already accompanying other children in elementary school, like the violin <laughs> class and the Gilbert and Sullivan yes. shows. That's right. My, Miss Rose was my first teacher, and she had big, long na red nails that clacked. You could hardly hear the keys. And I just remember, you know, CDE has a tree full of apples as can be. So, CBA likes to play in the meadow with the hay, this kind of stuff, you know, and, and then, um, but what happened was that my parents in Montreal, um, I don't know if you know about the, 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 the school, Ecole Vincent d'Andy, mm -hmm. but in Montreal, um, somehow my parents got wind of this because we lived in Cote St. Luke um, and they enrolled me. And so then I went into a very, you know, a pretty heavy music school. It was taught by nuns and I think it was the music faculty of the University of Sherbrooke in those days. So then I started to play uh, a little bit more seriously but then at school as soon as I could play you know I guess I must have been about 10. I think it was grade two, grade ten, maybe 10 or 9. I mean the violin teacher Mrs. Moore asked me if I wanted to accompany <coughs> the kids after school. <coughs> so that was my first gig, I think. And then I was playing O Canada. I was playing the national anthem for assemblies. And then we were, the, the music teacher was, was a great guy. And we were doing these little children's versions of, H, uh, of Gilbert and Sullivan. I still have the score. Children's version of, of the Mikado and of HMS Pinafore. So yeah, I was, uh, I didn't really think much of it, but you know, Yes, and as I was playing, I was also playing for the school for various, you know, functions. Mm -hmm. So were you reading yeah. um, a score? Were you doing it partly by ear when you were doing those shows? The Gilbert yeah. and Sullivan? You want to, I, ca I have the, I can pull the book out if you want to see it. I can uh, actually show you. Uh, you still can I was just curious, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, it's a, it was a, it was a, it's a little book. <laughs> score. Okay. Yeah. And I played it. And then in high school, I did, uh, I have the, the uh, piano reduction of South Pacific. Okay. So I was the musical director of that. Mm -hmm. And I played a whole score on the piano. So, yeah. So it's true that I was um, active. I wasn't just taking lessons and yeah. practicing at home. And yeah. um, you had mentioned Class Canada, and you're quite well known in, um, like, klezmer and, and Yiddish music revival um scene so your your dad had a radio show when you were a kid songs of our people and you were loaned like hasidic records you had a little bit of that in your ear yeah i remember uh we used to listen to the show as i was very young mm -hmm. but i remember he had all these records and uh 
he looped them on. So I, I mean, I was listening to the music without really thinking too much about it. Uh, you know, um, yeah, it's an interesting story that he had this connection with this uh, this guy who had a, ra- a record s- store, and I do remember he used to write his own commercials, sort of Cantor's Bakery. Mm-hmm. You know, in Montreal, I remember. I remember seeing his little handwriting, his little, you know, the, uh, 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 of these commercials, and and in, and so in in return for plugging that music store, he got all these records. So I particularly remember this this Israeli singer Miriam Ben Ezra, and that um, you know, Shaftamaya Yeshua. Listen to those melodies when I was quite young. So yes. Um, I guess that was formational. Yeah. Because we weren't a musical family in the sense of, you know, we didn't sit around playing. Nobody else played a musical instrument but I. So, um, but my father, because he had this radio show, and I mean, he loved music. Yeah. So So Mm -hmm. your parents were quite supportive of your musical talent, but you hadn't really thought of going into music professionally because your first year in university, you did psychology. Yes, I wanted to be a yeah. psychologist, and I took a couple of music courses. But, you know, university introductory to psychology is not exactly... I remember the first year was fine, but the second year, the first day of animal behavior, I left. I walked out of that classroom, and I walked over across the campus to the music department, and I just said, I want to major in composition. <laughs> I want to switch. And York at the time is a very liberal... You know, it wasn't like U of T um, and, or Humber at the time for, for music. It was very liberal, and it was a, actually a wonderful time to be studying at York. Um, so I got into the music department and, and, uh, and left psychology behind. And in, in fact, I didn't, uh, I did eventually come back to it, but. Yeah, yeah. when you were 47 or so, you went back. To, to become a psych you know my well, life well I did try to yes, do a little research before <laughs> you did you're well researched yes <laughs> so you yes. you're a practicing yeah, psychoanalyst as well as a musician yeah I am yes yes um and I find that my musical um the listening as a, of a musician has been very helpful to me and also the fact of, you know, working with another human being, just like working with a musician, even though they're different, of course, in many ways, you never know what you're, you're in a spontaneous mm-hmm. make, a meaning making uh, at all times in, in some ways. So I felt comfortable enough with yeah. that through encounters with other musicians that it, it fit. I actually and, know mm-hmm. a couple of um, musicians who... Y- you know, uh, were a little bit uh, not so young and they went back to school during the pandemic to become therapists. And I actually myself considered that quite seriously because at the beginning of this pandemic, we, I think our industry was very uncertain in terms of being performers. Yeah. Oh my God. And I, I think a lot mm-hmm. of us felt like we want to help people. So it's, it, I think it's interesting that, um, and I think as music teachers, a lot of us end up, you know, can be quite... <laughs> You're you're supporting people psychologically, and it's one on one. So it's you know you want to maybe get some training. <laughs> yeah, in some ways, those are the most difficult. The most difficult aspect is the psychological aspect of, of music. In many many ways, whether it's fear of playing in front of people, or fear of of, of uh, promoting yourself, mm-hmm. or 
just feeling like you can explore your instrument or feelings of your own limitations or feelings of your own, you know, uh, talent and your what's the, what you feel is owed to you or all kinds of things that we work through mm -hmm. as musicians. Um, so I think that it's a natural. I mean, for me, it was always something I, I didn't think I was going to be a musician. That's the irony of it. I thought I was, I wanted to be, uh, I think I wanted to be a psychologist from the time mm -hmm. I was little. That's what I wanted to be. And so, but, but because I, music was not incredibly difficult for me. I mean, my parents enrolled me in ballet. <clears throat> that didn't go very well. So they were looking, I guess, for some, which I really credit them. They didn't, you know, they were looking for some uh, extracurricular. And I guess I just took to music instantly. So it's a very strange relationship. It's not like I grew up feeling like, oh, I want to be a musician. Like many of my colleagues, I wanted to be a psychologist. So I think over the, over the years of being in both worlds, uh, both have really fed, each has fed the other for me. I feel very, I feel very fortunate to be able to have both of those. <coughs> yeah. I can't always do as much music as I would like to. Mm -hmm. um, I've had to give up, you know, some... But, but I continue to learn as a musician. I continue to listen to music, and I continue to play whenever I, whenever I can. I'm I'm much more um, discriminate. You know, I, I I have to be very careful with my time and energy. But uh, but I think that it's a very natural mm -hmm. thing to be as a musician. I and of course, the pandemic was incredibly devastating for musicians. Yeah. I was thinking about. Um, identities uh, in terms of, I think most musicians I know identify first as a musician and then as a person almost. And if they can't play due to injury or they're forced to retire, whatever happens, it's just just uh, so devastating for so many people. And it's very useful to not have those labels or, or think of yourself as a person first and then, you know, that you play different roles. What do you think about that since you, as you say, wear different hats? Yeah, well, I think it's very fluid that, that we need to, I, that we want to belong somewhere or identify somewhere, and I think it's true. You know, it's funny because I am, I, I devoted a lot of time to the training, uh, a therapy training and the psychoanalysis training, a lot of time. Um, and uh, I think when i when i think about the energy and the, the, it is my full time m profession now but when i think about it it's like yeah but you know i am a musician or am i a musician or am i still a musician or what makes a musician is a musician someone who's always playing or is a musician something you feel in your body and what if i couldn't do this what if i couldn't what if i couldn't pr practice as the therapist i mean there's all kinds of things that can happen to us in our lives that take us away. We no longer can do the thing that we thought we were born to do. And how are we going to adjust to that? Are we going to become despairing? Or are we going to find some way of living with the loss and continuing on, no matter what it is? So uh, thoughts about that are that our lives eventually do become limited, more limited. And how are we going to live our lives with dignity w if that happens? But it's easy to say. I mean, if you need, you know, your living is what's important. You have to make a living. And I think that's what's been so devastating. I'd recently played in, I was in New York on the weekend. Was saying that, you know, during the, he made more money during the pandemic. 
He had more money during the pandemic because they were income supplements. Mm. And this is like a musician, a master musician talking. So there are so many, uh, you know, making a living as a musician is so difficult, yeah. period. And that's, that's to me one of the sorrows that we live in a culture that doesn't, uh, I mean, I say sorrows, I just could fight harder for it to be recognized that art, that what the arts contribute to our, the health of our society and how badly treated musicians are and sp in the jazz world i mean i think the thing i think of a classical you're a classical musician if you get into an orchestra you kind of have a it's decent right you you have benefits you can retire is that true, is that true? but i think there's a misapprehension in uh, society thinking that most classical players end up in that world that's far from the truth where the i'm the extreme minority right of people right. in the classical world right but in the jazz world there isn't even that percentage of people who have any of that well they teach so, at universities so i, I would say it's sim yeah that's correct that's correct and that's not something i was drawn to do i'm fairly introverted i don't mind one-on-one -on -one, but the energy to you know when i teach an ensemble i gotta really <laughs> muster it and i can get into it but i don't thrive you know people who teach and love to teach it's wonderful to see that but part of my life was that I didn't mm. want to do that. And so it's true, 90, like so many jazz musicians, if they get a teaching gig, then they can survive and support themselves and play. And it's also a great place to meet other musicians. I mean, it's, it can be very helpful for a musician to be teaching, but I wonder how many would teach if they had to, yeah. if they didn't have to. Mm. That's what I wonder sometimes. Aside from being, it's important to impart knowledge and to mm -hmm. you know, contribute because you can't be young forever. You want to give your, re, want to be regenerative mm -hmm. of your knowledge. But, uh, yeah. Just because uh, just we were true. talking about the psychological thing. So when the uh, lockdowns first happened in 2020, and of course, I'm sure you were busy um, as a therapist online, I'm assuming, but did you go to the piano more? Did you find yourself playing more because you were isolated? Well, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just yeah. freaked out <laughs> to too much of anything. I did not, I don't even remember. Um, it's hard to even remember it now. It was so focused on <laughs> go home and stay home that it wasn't something I reached out. And also, at my piano at that point, this piano here, <coughs> was at my cousin's um, mm. in her basement, and she had... This this piano was had I used to have a, a studio mm -hmm. down at Artscape, and uh, the piano I you know which was wonderful, and then the city of course took sold or the space for condo development or I don't know what they did but they kicked out mm -hmm. the artist which is you know, a very common thing and so the piano went to my cousin's place with a proviso that I could play anytime I wanted, but the, when the pandemic happened I wasn't going to yeah. go over there and play, so I didn't have access to this piano a long time or I didn't feel safe you know going we, we, we decided no so I have an electric piano it's not very appealing to sit and you know pour out your heart to an electric piano so I wouldn't say I did a lot of playing in those early days I might have listened though mm -hmm. I'm always listening to music but um, how about yourself did you yeah I, I appreciate question. that you asked <laughs> um, I was terrified to stop I felt like if I stopped, I might not start again. And so I didn't take a day off in probably 18 months. Um, yeah. 
of playing. A day off and practicing, you mean? Like a day off? Yeah, just really kept going. And my husband, wow. I, uh, he's a violinist as well with the same orchestra. And it's not like, I'm not a big practicer. I never practiced hours a day, but I just did my thing. And I started obsessively making YouTube videos. So on this channel where this interview will appear, I have over a thousand violin videos I created during that time, mostly. Yeah, wow. it was super obsessive of me. And it just was a reason to like feel, it, it was like goal oriented. I was helping people out who wanted recordings of various things. Um, I was doing lots mm -hmm. of these uh, international masterclasses over Zoom as outreach and made connections, mm -hmm. tons of interesting connections. So that really was my therapy. It really, really helped me all that stuff. And then since I started the podcast, speaking to you, it's just over a year since I've started and I've done maybe your, my 45th interview or something. And that's been a wonderful way of oh, just great. feeling, mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's a mission to like bring to the world, like to show people the depth and breadth of what a life in music is and can be. And, um, and to connect mm -hmm. with fellow musicians, you know, in a different way. And I started it when we were quite isolated and it was really wonderful. It's like, I thought, well, I already mm -hmm. have Zoom calls with people. We could just do this sort of thing and record them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the first time I uh, did a Zoom meet, I mean, I think that in the beginning, those Zoom connections were very precious, even though they were so you know, the time lag and the echo. And I think I, did, I got together with Matt mm -hmm. Brubeck to play, to improvise over Zoom. And it was just the most primitive early thing. And it was sounded terrible, but it was yeah. so happy to just do something. I was on my electric piano and there was some kind of a delay. And, but you know, it's funny cause it's like, it sort of throws you back. It was through, through you back to a time. Mm -hmm. Like it was a little more primitive. And so, but that connection was so, that was quite incredible. And then the other thing that really was quite moving was um, there was a f an improvisation that w uh, that came out of New York that a bunch of musicians played in that we just, um, I don't remember how we did it. It was about 10 minutes. We were supposed to play something over 10 minutes and a bunch of people did it. And there was mm -hmm. a, there was a shape, start like this at this mm -hmm. minute, go like that. And you know, like there was a, and it was uh, that was incredibly moving, and that was just all about for healthcare. It was for the healthcare workers. It was a it was a very moving um, thing to do. I remember feeling very emotional. So there was that feeling, yeah, of being isolated and then coming together. So I think that this technology, which, as we were talking before, that this particular um, platform we're on, can I say Riverside? It? Yeah. Riverside is, yeah. is a game changer. It's a game changer, as you said. You said that, and so it's also allowed for the technology to allow people to come together in different places. That's one thing I can say that's come out of this that will forever make it more accessible for yeah. people who are isolated to co to connect, because some people are very isolated. So, um, you yeah. But it does make me think about what you said, though, about. Um, different communities uh, and how they, how, you know, if somebody is not, I'm not always, always sure exactly how to express it. So I say with someone's deaf, to, for the, for the, for us or the hearing community versus the, the community that does not, what, what they do, you know, how is that, how has the platform helped them or for someone who's not sighted 
can't say I'm saying not, but you visually know, impaired I'm, I'm not or sure hard what of hearing. Exactly how, yeah. how to express. Yeah, but you know, even to say impaired, like the community of the deaf yeah. is a community. Where the <laughs> right, I yeah. hear does not mean, you know, this like whole idea of a disability. Um, well, one thing that one so, thing that's yeah, interesting is you'd think that mm -hmm. um, yeah. people in the deaf community would just uh, be texting for communication, but actually they use these video chats for signing because it's more expressive and quicker for them to send messages back and forth. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned yeah. uh, Klez Canada. Now you were um, had a very uh, close musical and personal partnership with Adrian Cooper. And you wrote a song cycle uh, for mm -hmm. her with uh, the... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. that's still to be released. Yes. So I, I wrote a song cycle. So I guess poetry is another love of mine. And, um, and you know, the collaborator that I originally worked with it was Dave, is Dave Wall, the singer Dave Wall. We did a recording called Still Soft Voice Heart. <clears throat> How it came about was he gave me one day a uh, recording of Fritz Wunderlicht doing Dichterliebe, right? And I started listening to it, and I just fell in love with Lieder. I like short forms, and I love the, you know, wedding of poetry and music, and so it's a natural thing for me to want to do some settings of poet to poetry to music, which is very similar to silent film. It's like I love to do that kind of, what do you call it, you know, uh, try to express this in music, try to express film in music, try to find a way of of expressing word and music. So uh, Adrian had done some research on Anna Margolin for her dissertation. And I started reading the poetry of this woman and it was very, yeah. it's very uh, dark, very um, sensual, very, um, she was a troubled soul. And she also wrote at a time when women were not exactly you know, she had to write under a, ma I think she wrote under a male name. She s submitted her manuscript. She wrote one book. Anyway, I thought, well, it would be great to write some songs for Adrian of this poetry. And we got as far as uh, we did a really nice demo um, and at, at Canterbury Sound here in Toronto. And then when she passed away, I had this demo and I have not I'm I'm working on releasing it right now in collaboration with Joshua Horowitz from Varetsky Pass um, and it's it's I don't know if it's a song cycle yet it's, it's certainly a, co a collection of her poems that I set uh, and uh, it's going to be called all silent things speak today and um, the style of these uh, pieces are quite varied. Some are a little bit more on the jazz side. Some are a little bit more on the Brahmsian side. There's a piece that's a bit more free improvisation. So I tried, I tried as I like to do because of my the scope of what I like to listen to, to and and over the years the distillation of all the styles that I like into my style. The this collection of songs is quite varied. Uh, and Adrian's voice is just magnificent. She sings. So that should be out by the end of the year. Mm. It's going to be a limited edition CD. Um, and the proceeds from it are going to go into the Dreaming in Yiddish uh, fund. And at Dreaming in Yiddish, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, when Adrian passed away, um, um, 
her daughter uh, and uh, uh, so Sarah Gordon and Frank London and Michael Winograd started a uh, the idea floated the idea sort of the idea of having a memorial concert once a year and a skull and to give an award to someone who's creating something or has created and contributed to Yiddish culture and then I joined the group and we've done over 10 concerts um, so that is and we call it the Dreaming in Yiddish uh, it's a Dreaming in Yiddish uh, yearly concert and uh, so the proceeds from that uh, are going to go to help just again to support artists so that they can work so one artist gets a prize a cash prize every year and then can work on a project so that's really a wonderful thing, and so I want to contribute with this reporting. So the recording won't be available for streaming, like on or. Well, you know, I, I could sort of talk this through with you. Uh, it will be, but I yeah. want it to be a collector's item. Yeah. You know, nobody uses CDs anymore, and and in a way, if I put it out in streaming, it, I want something I hold in my hand. I want something that I've kind of, mm-hmm. I want the cover. And I so I'm going to make a CD. And then it will be yeah, available. Later. I think after that it'll be available for streaming. But I think, I think it's a it's one of those things that I want to make as a testament testament to that yeah. as a concrete form, rather than only on mm-hmm. streaming. But it will be. Re- yes. So I think you're yes. like me. Uh, we're the generation where our parents would speak Yiddish at home, so the children wouldn't understand the sort of secret language. <laughs> That's right. And you know what's funny? It's very funny that I, when I, again, when I was in New York, I had dinner with Lou Grossi, who's a drummer in the free jazz trio that I also am in with Ken Filiano. He's Italian-American, and his okay. parents didn't want him to learn Italian. So, uh, so I can talk about the, you know, Jewish, it's an, I think it's a bit of an immigrant, uh, on, on one hand, the, the immigrant parents come and they, don't, they want the kids to kind of mm-hmm. assimilate. They want them to be Canadian or they want them to be American. And they're different. I mean, every culture has so many differences, and every family is so different. But um, I don't know if, you know, they didn't want us to stand out. But also, I think they wanted a secret language. <clears throat> I think they wanted to be able to talk without us understanding what they were saying. Yeah. And of course, it backfired <laughs> somewhat. I remember these phrases like, is nicht farze? And almost anybody could figure out what that means. It's not for them. And it would be like, if they said that, it means something you want. And it's something that's, you know. So, I, I mean, in spite of, but, but I never learned to speak it. I just remember them talking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have the same mm-hmm. experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading right now the books of Jacob, which is by Olga Tokarczuk. And it takes place, it starts anyway in 1700s in Poland, Lithuania. And sort of understanding a little bit more about the, mm-hmm. Empire, the Polish-Lithuanian Empire, and how big it was, and of course the Jews were there and welcomed there, and there was, uh, you know, at a certain point, and then of course, not. So, um, one of the I was very fortunate in uh, when I, you know what with Adrian we travel I traveled and, and performed with her quite a bit. I mean, I really got I really my world really expanded through through knowing her and. That's how I became part of the scene in New York. It's so so important and precious to me, and the friendships and the collaborations mm-hmm. that have come out of that. But we went to Warsaw, and um, then when we were there, we played at the Singer Festival, which is a festival of Jewish music in Warsaw, mm-hmm. which is already kind of like amazing. And um, 
went to the, they provided a driver and went to my mother's hometown, which was unbelievable. And we went to the cemetery and saw the, the graves that had been knocked over and that they were just starting to restore. And just having a sense of what that might have been like, which is impossible to know. Similarly, I, I've been to Kiev and to uh, Moscow and had a chance to go mm -hmm. and meet people who didn't leave. Like who, there were many people in the Soviet Union, of course, at the time, and who didn't leave as my parents had in the early part of the century. So these were not the, they, they, they were not um, the Russian you know, side of it were not, uh, a lot of those people did obviously survived, did not you know, go to the concentration camps. But Ukraine was a, different, a bit of a different story, but still unbelievable to meet people and their experiences as opposed to my parents who came and what their experience was like. I mean, how they came when they were, my mother was three in 1926. So during the whole Holocaust, during the whole war, she was just a young adult. And what they knew and what they didn't know <coughs> It's kind of a, it's a very strange thing to be here as opposed to there. And you know, your family's already all here because they came before. Yeah. They just came just before my mother's family, just before. So yeah, um, it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And going back there is mind blowing. And I know there are many other people who've had that experience, both uh, families who are survivors' kids and those who didn't were fortunate enough not to have it gone through the Holocaust in that way. Um, mm -hmm. We had talked a lot, a mm -hmm. bit about your, um, your mu Jewish music connection. Would you be willing to play some, something for us? Sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I don't know what I'll play. Let's just see.
Thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you. That's a Romanian fantasy. And uh, a lot of, uh, I think a lot of us uh, learn music from the old recordings because at a certain point in the early 20th century, there was the advent of, um, I guess they were wax cylinders. And uh, so during this Yiddish revival, uh, it was very, what was key and important was the rediscovering of these cylinders and then they were put onto cassette tapes. Um, Kurt Bjorling um, from uh, 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 Brave Old World uh, fame, it's, which is a very well-known, amazing uh, klezmer uh, band, uh, he was quite instrumental in putting these recordings onto onto cassettes and uh, CDs later, and so a whole generation of musicians could listen to the original recordings of these tunes. Original as in, you know, the first time they were recorded. I wanted to mention, I loved your um, album, The Peace is Broken, with uh, Yoshi Fruchter. Um, really, I enjoyed that album a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's... Um, uh, the other sort of aspect of the continuing of coming together of uh, all the influences into what I actually want to write. And uh, it, that's the beginning, that, that duo, that's our first, our maiden recording, as they say, our debut, and that's both of our compositions that have, that are yeah. not traditional, but that have Yiddish inflections and interpretations. Yeah, and there's one of those tunes is called Ozharov, yeah which I wrote for my mother's hometown. Yes, that's right. The piece is broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's an interesting musician too, Yoshi. I was, uh, every, it's interesting getting to know. Interesting musician. Mm -hmm. And a great, a great human being. Very a lovely person. <clears throat> yes. Um, yeah, we uh, had the opportunity to play together a couple of times. And then as musicians often do, let's go into the studio and <clears throat> lay down a few tracks and see how, what, what comes of it. So... That's a collaboration I'm looking forward to playing a lot more with him. Yeah. I just wanted to circle back to your education at York uh, University because you studied the Murdangam, uh, South Indian drum, when you were there. Yes. Yes, I did. I did for a couple of years. I mean, I didn't, you know, I was not a serious devotee, but it was Trisha Shankaran who was, uh, you know, the mastery of that in, in terms of Indian Carnatic music is its one of the, I would say the highest forms of music. Um, yeah, and so just the experience of being around somebody who's so, um, I don't use the word incredible because it seems like a dumb word to use for someone like that. But, you know, when you study with a master who's really s devoted so much of their life and has mastered the and that instrument, you know, the, I, I like simple. I like a simple instrument with which yeah. people do incredible things. Like a tablas, tabla is another instrument like that. The speaking quality of it. And I loved listening to. I I really like listening to Indian Carnatic music, a lot. So I think the thing about my education that was so fantastic was that York was not. And this has sort of probably shaped me as a musician. You know, I went there. I studied jazz. I studied classical music with Reginald Godden, who is a he was a very well-known pianist in the in his day, classical pianist, and he was a Bach scholar. And I think he knew Glenn Gould, he knew Harry Summers. They were all you know buddies 
and uh, <coughs> and I studied Bach with him, and I studied Merdangam with Shankaran, and I took courses on uh, ethnomusicology and ethnomusicology, and I took a course. One of the greatest courses I took was at Music of the Americas, in which we were sitting and listening to um, Hopi, you know, um, uh, songs and Cuban, Afro-Cuban music, mambos, and, t- you know, from, and, from the, and then like music from the 20s. And it really opened up my ears to music. Ethnomusicology, Ethno- which is, you know, it's fraught in its own way, but the idea that you, there's no limit, there's, it's such a bridge, it's such a cultural bridge. Um, and so my appreciation, when I think about what I've got in my library sometimes, and if I just sort of shuffle things around, the stuff that comes mm-hmm. together is, it's quite, I'm quite, I, I just love the cornucopia of sound. And I think York was responsible for really opening up my ears to music of the world and giving me a sort of a basic starting point of how to listen to music, what I'm, what I'm listening for, the sound ideal, for example, of the voice. Um, yeah. All kinds of different ways of listening, you know. Um, so... Uh, you know, in terms of Merdungam, I just remember sitting and these concerts and, uh, you know, like the tala, getting the tala, which is the time, the way the beats are divided up and just sitting there with people and listening to the music, um, consciousness expanding. Did you vocalize the rhythms a lot? Mm-hmm. We had to, I think it's called solkatu, where you have to, um, mm-hmm. you learn to articulate. There are different s- syllables for the different sounds that you make, and you learn to say, you know, the pattern. Yeah. And it's incredibly fast when it's done, you know, when you hear people, you know, you hear this in concerts all the time, somebody will then start to vocalize what they're, what they're playing. Um, and it's, it's, you know, considering a music, it's not harmonic music, it's, it's a music, uh, but, and that is not a limitation, it's not a limitation at all. I mean, it, that's what, every music is its own, the sophistication of that music is beyond, and the improvisation, the quality of improvisation. And I listen to WKCR, which is a Columbia University radio station, which I think is amazing. And they have um, concert, Indian music concerts. There's a, there's a couple of shows, and uh, I've been listening to recently, and just blows you away. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to mention that about because, you know, as a pianist and a lot of what you do is so harmonic and then to do this music that's uh, about rhythm and melody and a completely different kind of improv, it must have been, yeah, so different. Mm-hmm. And the other music, uh, another music that I've been mm-hmm. very, very, very fortunate to play, which really is a piano music, is uh, is Montunos and Salsa. So because when I lived in Winnipeg, there's a guy there, Rodrigo Munoz, who's from Chile, and he, he started a, a salsa band. And so I, I was playing piano in that band, and I really got into the music. I'd always, I'd always been into Cuban music. And in fact, at York, that was mm-hmm. what I did my, you know, my first sort of thesis on, was American Cuban music and how it influenced American popular music. And there I was playing salsa, and for a piano player, it's fan- it's brilliant because you're basically one of the rhythm instruments, and you play these montunos. And I could have spent my life doing that. I could have spent my life playing that music. It's so incredible. Um, and you played with Jane Jane Bennett for many many years. Oh. Yes, I played with Jane. 
that, that's a, that was another experience. I met Jane in Toronto. We were both studying jazz. We became friends, and we, we kind of you know, put together this little duo. We used to play in restaurants six nights or f five nights mm -hmm. a week, and I learned the repertoire. That's how I learned a lot of jazz tunes, playing with her. And then they, her and her husband, Larry Kramer, <coughs> had been to Cuba, and they started to do all these, you know, their lives completely changed, and they started to become involved, and it's incredible what she's, the musicians that, that uh, have uh, been in the bands that she's, uh, that she's led. Um, anyway, in 97, I had, I decided I wanted to do a recording. I had a bunch of compositions, and I thought, uh, Larry, who's a great producer, I wanted him to produce. And he told he listened to the tunes and said, "Why don't we go to Cuba to record them?" So that was also I guess that's another experience of uh, music that changed my life. Went to Havana and went to this old, the old RCA, RCA uh, recording studio, which was called a Gram, and we recorded there with Cuban musicians. And that's the story that comes back to I'm in Cuba and I'm playing with these musicians who have classical training. <laughs> and are so incredibly well known. They they know their own music so so well. I mean, it's, and it's not it's a, it's a culture where music is just so part of it, part of the life. That's what made me interested in Jewish music because, to you know, I had played in wedding and bar mitzvah bands and I had listened to my father's music, mm -hmm. you know, when when he had that radio show. <clears throat> but I was quite there was a big gap where it was just not part of my life. And then to come back to it. First of all, through a knowledge, mm -hmm. a little bit more study about, eth again, I think ethnomusicology, but just world music, to be able to think about it <coughs> and then to, re to reconnect with it. And then that's how <coughs> eventually I, I got tied into the uh, New York scene because I had a group in Winnipeg called Both From Both Ends of the Earth, and we were invited to play at the Ashkenaz Festival in Toronto. And at that festival, Adrian was performing, and I was hired to play piano with her. And so all these things mm -hmm. start to come together and so it's interesting how that Cuban connection resulted ultimately mm -hmm. in me becoming tied into the Jewish revival, Klezmer revival scene. Yeah. And the Cuban musicians had Russian training, if I understand? Well, because Russia was so, you know, part of the, it was a communist country. So, <clears throat> yeah. They had serious, serious stuff. I mean, they're hardly instruments, getting instruments was difficult, but I remember going to some rehearsals of children playing in these orchestras. It's serious and heavy there. And the musicians that come out of there that have gone through, both those are just formidable. I mean, I just don't, you know, they've got it all happening. Unbelievable. So, yes, the Russian, they, they learned through the Russian method, which is, you know, it's pretty... Um, rigorous. Yeah. I heard Jane Bennett with some Cuban musicians in Ottawa many years ago. I think it was in the 90s. So, like I know it was in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and that that was just starting to get in our ears, that, that sound, that music. No, and now she's, uh, she's, she's uh, has a group called Makeke. It's all mm -hmm. women and incredible musicians. And they're all over the world playing. So, she's just grown and grown and grown, developed and again, created so many opportunities, brought young musicians to Canada who have then, you know, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you the list of people that she's, she, that have come through, uh, play, uh, sh that she's played with. And the drummer on my, on my recording, which is called Birds Are Returning, was Daphne Prieto, who has won a Grammy, and he's one of the foremost uh, drummers, percussionists in the States now, so 
of, of you know, Cuban music and jazz. So, yeah, there, it's, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So do you still play Latin tunes for fun? Or like you mentioned you love salsa or that's something you go to? Uh, you know, you can't play salsa yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a group effort, so sometimes I get yeah. the opportunity to play. I think uh, in New York one year, uh, there was a, a um, it was a concert, but it was certainly, <clears throat> what Frank had organized something and, and asked me to play piano on it, and he, you know, it's New York. And so the musicians that he had playing were a number of Latino players who, so I got a chance to play, but I don't. I don't get a chance to play very much. No, I don't. Mm -hmm. That's a sadness, of, of my, you know, of mine that it's uh, not something that I. Once I moved from Winnipeg back here, I think I played once or twice, but I never got into the scene here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you um, ever improvise like in a really classical way, like sort of like Beethoven or, you know what I mean? If I've been listening to the music, more. Mm -hmm. I mean, Beethoven has been a sort of passion this year because a lot of stuff has come out on what just came out. It's a fantastic book by Laura Tunbridge just came out. <coughs> it's called Beethoven in Seven Pieces. Um, and so I'm sitting there listening, and I'm listening, oh, the octet, uh, I'm going to listen to that. I don't know that very well. Or, you know, the the chronology, his first, his first stuff, to think about it in long, you know, in uh, chronological order. And so then... I might sit down at the piano and look at this, a sonata and think, oh, I like, oh, I really like this. I, 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 w I really like Schubert's voicings. So I'll look at Schubert's voicings, the way he plays the, or Brahms as well. I, I'm a big lover of Brahms, the intermessi. So I'll be looking at, if I'm playing them, I'll start to try to figure out what is it that, the, what, what's he doing here that I think that could be interesting in what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. Like, how can I, you know, you always want to try to expand to get out of your comfort zone. So what is this about that I would never do if I'm improvising? And is there some way I can incorporate something, an intention, not the notes, but the intention, like, especially, you know, the left hand, the, you know, because the, the, I, I don't have the biggest hands in the world. So, you know, if you're playing Brahms, you got to stretch them pretty far. So, or if I'm playing Bach, which is the other, yeah, I play the fugues and preludes. If I'm only have, if I have no time, that's what I play. I played it during the pandemic. That's all I played practically was Bach. Mm. Because Bach is the kind of music for me that just, it's like a brain massage and <coughs> it never bums me out. <laughs> it's, yeah. Baroque music is really great for just like, the way it fits together so satisfying to me it just lifts me up um that's one music i can almost always listen to i can't always listen to rachmaninoff <laughs> that's for yeah. sure whoa but i can almost always listen to baroque music and so with bach if i'm playing and i'm and then i'm starting getting aware of the inter the the voicing the voices and don't think about things vertically when you're playing jazz don't think about chord to chord to chord mm -hmm. Think about it as moving voices, just like Bach. And you have a very different visual, a very different conception of how to play, especially with piano, mm -hmm. which is moving voices. So I will, if I've played enough Bach and I sit down to improvise, I'll be very mindful of the voices. And in one of the pieces on that Romanian fantasy album, I did a kind of counterpoint 
you know, it wasn't a formal counterpoint, but it had a counterpuntal mm. kind of feeling in terms of that. I, I'm very conscious of voices moving, you know? Mm. So I would say that that that's how I would adapt and improvise in the, f in the style of, you know, a composer that I'm really fond of. Shostakovich, Preludes and Fugues are really favorites of mine. Messiaen, which I find incredibly hard to penetrate. Um, I mean, this music is, it's just, there's just so much. It's like saying Africa. Africa, yeah. <laughs> it's just so varied and big. So I like to take, just to look at one thing and see is there something that I could expand my consciousness in, in the way I play. I'm a big listener to classical music. I listen all the time. I really, during the pandemic, one of my favorite things it was to listen to the BBC uh, record, record review. And so where they, they have a piece of music and some expert comes in and talks about all these recordings and picks their recommended recordings. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but it, it really ex expanded my horizons. And so I, I go back to class, classical music a lot for food. I was thinking the type of um, therapy you, you do with people it relates, if I understand, to the unconscious quite a bit. Well, I mean, I think we all try to protect ourselves in the pain that we experience in our lives. And sometimes when that pain is too painful, we try to find a way of putting it somewhere that where it won't cause us pain. And yeah. that one of the ways of thinking about the unconscious could be that way, that we, we kind of put things become under, to go underground and they emerge in ways that we're not really aware of. Yeah. The unconscious is somewhat of things that are happening that are out of awareness. And, and another way of thinking about it is childhood. As a child, there's no inhibition. So whatever you think, whatever you feel, and those, those feelings that you have sometimes go underground as well. And then you become an adult and you never kind of work through those early feelings. So yeah, I think there's, there's many ways of thinking about what that word means, but mm -hmm. certainly stuff that's going on outside of our awareness but that is impacting our lives and sometimes in a very destructive way maybe that's a good thing to try to th make meaning from and understand and explore so I'm, I'm guessing it was much better right. for you to go back to study to be a therapist later in life as opposed to if you stuck with it in your 20s I don't think I would have had a whole bunch to contribute as a therapist in my early early years yeah. but you know, I know a lot of people in, and through the training that start to train when they're, you, know, you, you can't really start training to be a therapist when you're 20 easily, I think. I'm not saying that you can't be very helpful and do something, but I think that mature, this is the one, one profession that the maturity adds. As long as you keep your, remember what it's like to be younger yeah. and not just see things from your own age all the time. It's the, the, the art of like empathy, which is what it, to be, to try to put yourself in the other person as much as you can, to try to imagine what someone else's experience is. So I think I'm, I'm grateful that I waited. Yeah. And it I would have rather do this than have been a psychologist and then started studying music than the other way around, yeah. for sure. I'm glad that I played music as a young person. I don't know when you started, but it's so natural. I don't have to think about the things that I would have to think about if I started to play now, you know? So and when I'm glad of the order. And when you were a <laughs> child, Marilyn, and you were improvising and make, writing music, did the the women who were teaching you at Maison d'Indy, did they 
not like that or did they know about that creative side coming through they didn't know about that <laughs> okay <laughs> i don't know what they would I, I had a great teacher she would have you know i think she might have been very I'm, i might even have played something at some point she probably found it very you know cute or whatever but it was so focused on the repertoire we had to learn for our exam at the end of the year that but she was i remember my teacher saying to me love those notes love those notes when you and the, the way she tried to get me to produce tone and the, she taught me more about making a sound out of the piano and just that love those notes i never forgot that mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful thing to say yeah you know um so um because that is what it is with the piano. It's coaxing. Because it, it's a, a mechanical instrument. It's an instrument of illusion. It's not like a string. Mm -hmm. Now, I play a little guitar, and so I know the sensitivity of a string. And when you strike a string, is so much nuance. But with the piano, you, you touch the note. But you have to imagine with the piano. You have to imagine. That's what opens up the sound. Mm -hmm. And I'm... That was a big focus. Like I'm not a hard player. I'm not a heavy player. I'm not a loud player. I'm not the most virtuosic player. But I'm very when I'm when I'm feeling best is when I'm really tuned into the sound production, mm -hmm. the, the tone. Yeah. And do you have? Um, is it easy for you to switch tracks and just have that? Um, you know that kind of special focus you need when you're playing music well, as opposed to the busyness of of your professional life and you know what I'm getting at? I think it's hard to focus. I think it's hard in terms of all the demands of life. Um, and I think one of the things is that I can become, uh, I can be focused, but I think one of the things that's led to my playing different styles is a certain restlessness. <laughs> and I like, I like to move. So I have to sometimes tie myself down and I think in this day and age, the other thing that's a peril is we're caught bombarded with these short bursts of information all the time. That's very seductive. And so to sit down and read a book or to do things that are very time-consuming and slow are not as appealing as something that you get the feedback immediately on. So, and I don't know what it's like to be a young person in that, growing up with that, because we grew up before yeah. the internet. And, you know, I, I think it's hard to imagine for some people what that would be like but <coughs> you left a phone message or long distance or dialing, a, even dialing a phone takes so long to dial a number, you know, but in those days it didn't, you just did it. So I think it's also hard to focus in today's day and age. And yet look at the technology, we wouldn't be meeting. Yeah. So th it's, it's uh, different aspects of this technology, but so yes, it is hard sometimes to focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was curious. Something I've realized is that I'm one of these people I do a lot and that I don't uh, allow my brain enough time to just wander. And then I'm, and if I can allow that, um, then when I go to play music or do other things where I want to focus in, I'm able to do that better. You know, I need to have that sort of outlet of just the mind, the mind wandering. It's our, sort of our default, you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, what I find is hard is that uh, I don't get, because I was talking about my, my practice is pretty full-time and it, it really does absorb mm -hmm. me. And sometimes when I'm not doing it, I don't want to do anything. Yeah. I just, I need silence. And so sitting down and playing, I really have to get into the headspace where that's going to be something that's going to contribute something to my well-being and not just 
need to just be in silence, which is not to talk to anyone, not to re- just to really just un- unpack. Um, so I think the thing that I remember about being a musician is, you know, anyone who freelances has to learn how to do that because it's your your time is your own, and that can be really you never you, you can put things off and if you're a procrastinator your time is your own so you so in a way it's hard to structure i have an hour i'm going to practice for an hour and get into anything creative and i just i so i remember liking the stretch of time you have to come back and you have to learn how you're creative maybe i have to do it in 10 or 15 minute chunks and get up and walk around i'm not someone who can sit there for 4 hours and do that it's just not yeah. me but in order to do that, I, I can't be scheduling creativity. That was that's the hardest thing to do, mm-hmm. and I'm some people can do it, but I I can't. <laughs> I need the time, unless something's happened that's absolutely compelling that I write something, you know, that I write some music and I have to, and then I'm just drilled onto it. Um, or if I have a gig, right? If you have a gig, then it's great. It's so structured. Okay, I have to practice the rehearsals tonight. That's where having a regular musical gig is so fantastic. And I remember any theater stuff I've done has been just, it's so focused and so intense, and that's all you can do. And it's not, that, that in some ways it's very calming to have that. I don't know about you, because, you know, when you know you have to learn this music for the rehearsal, there's no question, yeah. right? You're doing it. Okay. I wanted to thank you so much for your, your time today and, and your, your wisdom and your beautiful music. Um, it was really beautiful Thank to you. hear you play. Oh, it's a pleasure for me, and it's nice to talk to you. And uh, I'll check out the, uh, I don't know when I'll be in Ottawa next, but it would be great to hear you play, too. And thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, great. My life is so enriched by getting to know these incredibly inspiring creative guests and their perspectives on their lives and music. Please follow this podcast and sign up for my podcast newsletter to get sneak peeks for upcoming guests and find out about newly published transcripts.